6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 6 through 8. And now because, verse 15, And now because ye have done all these works, saith the Lord, and I spoke unto you, rising up early and speaking, and ye heard not. And I called you, but ye answered not. Therefore will I do this to do unto this house, which is called by my name, in which ye trust, and unto the place which I gave to you and to your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. This is a real blow for those Jews because to them the temple was their salvation, not the God of the temple. And what he's pointing out, he says, I wiped out Shiloh where the tabernacle stood, and I'm ready to wipe out the temple for your sins. The temple is nothing but a place. It's the God of the temple that they should be paying attention to. Verse 15, And I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, even the whole seed of Ephraim. And here Ephraim isn't the tribe, of the, the, the one tribe of the twelve. It's used idiomatically for the northern group. It frequently isn't in the scripture. It's used connotatively. Now, interesting it is how important it is for us to remember wherein our trust should lie. Our trust does not lie in navies or air forces or economies, economics, I mean. It lies in the God of this country or was the God, or the God that at least you know, we, we acknowledged in the roots of this country. And so that's why, as I read Jeremiah, I get awfully nervous, because what he says to them in terms of having forgotten their roots and have misunderstood their prosperity as to from whence it come, came, I think we have too. We have too. We're in the same boat. But anyway, moving on. Verse 16. This is a wild one. This is a wild verse. Listen carefully. Therefore, God says... Pray not for this people, neither lift up cry nor prayer for them, neither make intercession to me, for I will not hear thee. Boy. Boy. You know, we stumble from time to time and whatever, and we may even, you know, fall back. But boy, the one thing that gives us comfort, you and I, is that we have an intercessor, whoever liveth to make intercession for us, right by the throne of God. Praise God for that. Here, and I don't want you to infer that verse 16 is permanent. It's a, it's a, it's a temporal situation because God is indeed going to hear prayers and does hear prayers for Israel and so forth. I'm just saying here in this, but he, that's the ultimate indictment. Hey, don't pester me. I'm not going to hear you. Pray not, you know, pray not for this people, he tells Jeremiah. Hey, that's heavy. It's not surprising to see the priests get rattled. It's too bad they didn't get rattled enough to repent. Instead, they just get rattled at Jeremiah and hate him for the rest of their lives. Verse 17, Seest thou not what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, and the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead their dough to do what? to make cakes 
to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto other gods that they may provoke me to anger. They're worshiping the queen of heaven. Now, if any of you come from a Catholic background, my apologies, because that title is tragically given to someone who would be perhaps the most offended by it. But that's not what we really have in view here. We have the queen of heaven here is the Assyrian and Babylonian god Ishtarte. Uh, yeah, excuse me, Ishtar. Also uh, worshipped uh, connect in connection with the planet Venus. Venus is a Greek or Roman name, and Ishtarte, uh, Ishtar is the uh, original um, Canaanite name, and Astarte is a, is a variation of that. And uh, Jeremiah will bring her up in chapter 44. We'll deal with some more of that. She's the goddess of love and fertility. She was um, initiated into the area by Manasseh. That was the, uh, the king that is reputed to have sawn um, um, Isaiah in half sometime prior. Second Kings 21 is verses, first nine verses is where uh, this is the issue is dealt with vis-a-vis -vis Manasseh. And it's introduced to Judah, that is the southern kingdom, by Jehoiakim, the king that's extant that, uh, during the period we're talking about. The queen of heaven, interesting, uh, the concept of a queen of heaven is not Hebrew, even in terms, in, it's, it's uh, introduced externally, but uh, obviously embraced here and becomes a problem, and God um, is upset because the children gather wood and the fathers kindle a fire, the women need their dough to make cakes to the queen of heaven and to pour out... Uh, drink offerings, and so forth. Now, incidentally, for those of you, we're going to get more into this when we get into Jeremiah 44. There's always also a link of all of this to, of course, Jezebel. And Jezebel is not only prominent in Old Testament literature as the gal who really championed idolatry and the worship of Baal, but she gets mentioned by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ in the seven letters to seven churches, incident to the church at Thyatira. Those of you that are interested in that and would like to get more into this, I say, as I recall, we digress into that with some depth when we deal with Revelation chapter 2 or 3, and of chapter 2, every part of chapter 3, as I recall, and with the church at Thyatira, for those of you that would want to, you know, refresh their memories or dig into that area um, and that kind of background. And clearly there is a prophetic link, although Jeremiah's focus here is the historical occasion that lies uh, before him right here. Verse 19. Do they provoke me to anger, saith the Lord? Do they not provoke themselves to the confusion of their own faces? Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, mine anger and my fury shall be poured out upon this place. Listen carefully. Upon man, upon beast, upon the trees of the field, and upon the fruit of the ground, and it shall burn and shall not be quenched. Jeremiah has in focus here the onslaught of Israel's enemies. However, as we study this, we can't help but notice that this whole issue is going to be broadened globally, yet future, that's described in detail by the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation will have much more meaning to you after you've had a chance to really study the Old Testament. Don't misunderstand me. I don't think you should start there and wait till last. I think you should start in the book of Revelation, go through that in depth, then the whole Bible will become clear to you, and you yourself will start linking these ideas to the scenarios, the panorama that surfaces in this climactic book that uh, uh, caps the Scripture, the only book with a promise 
to the person that studies it uniquely. But these phrases, and you'll see it here all the way through here, uh, and there's going to be more of it, uh, is, is very revelation-like in its style and use of idiom. But God pouring out his fury, not just on man, we understand that, but it bothers us to see, gee, the beast, the trees, the fruit of the ground. Hey, he's mad. Verse 21, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, put your burnt offerings unto your sacrifices, then eat flesh. For I spoke not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the, the, the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and ye shall be my people, and walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well unto you. His point isn't that he said, you know, I didn't give you those things. He's saying before the sacrifices and what have you, before all that came up, uh, what I commanded was obedience. All these rituals and things uh, were, were, were subsequent. And um, and also there's another thing about chapter 20, uh, verse 22 here that I should mention. It's not probably not obvious. If you're a diligent reader of the word, this may not really bother you, but some scholars make a big thing because it, for I spoke not unto your fathers, nor commanded in the day I brought them. Well, obviously he did. There is a rhetorical device in the Hebrew, a rhetorical negation, simply as a mechanism to put one thing in subjection to another. He's not really saying what you and I would in the English, saying that, that I never spoke to your fathers. What he's really saying is, I spoke not unto them, but spoke this way, meaning that which he did speak is secondary, you see. And we sometimes do that in the English, and I won't try to contrive an example, but uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a rhetorical device where you negate something, not to deny it completely, but to render it in subjection to the point you're really making. Okay? And that's what's happening here. And uh, some people have a problem with that. But it's, a, um, it's not denial. It's just what you would call secondary placement rhetorically. Um, for I spoke not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this thing I commanded you. Now, it's, an, it's like an overemphasis for style. He did command them about a red sack, but it was secondary. It came later. His main emphasis was the thing I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, etc. Okay? So don't, don't, don't get hung up on, on that. To take that to, in a denotative way. What he's saying is that moral law... Is, is paramount over ritual law. Now, what's interesting, just another point to you, so you get the, something else inside here. In the synagogues in Judaism, they read the Torah, and the Torah is always scheduled. If you know there's the cycle, you'll go through the old Torah, whatever cycle it is, I forget, and there's a certain portion of the Torah read each, uh, at, uh, each lectionary period. When they read Leviticus 6, 7, and 8, they, all, they also read what's called the Haftorah, a portion of the other scripture, non-Torah, that is not the five books of Moses, but some other thing. This passage, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 22, is the concluding portion when they read Leviticus 6, 7, and 8. Okay, so it's, the, it's used among strict uh, observers to put in contradistinction to the ritual law. To make that very point, which is you know constructive and interesting, and I thought it happened to come across that, and I thought I'd share that with you. Yeah, obedience before 
uh, it was required at Sinai before the law was given. You can check that out in, in Exodus chapter 19, the first six verses. Um, and the concept of obedience and worship, then having sacrifice, you'll find all through the Old Testament. Examples are Psalm 51, where David repents of his sin with Bathsheba. Psalm 51 is his repentance psalm, and there too, verses 16 through 19, has the same idea. What's the point? Obedience before sacrifice, and what also comes through, if you study that carefully, is the premise that faith is the basis in the Old Testament as well as the New. Faith. I'll let you think that through on your own, because that's too important for me to give you a cheap shot. I'll let you think that through. So I'll move on. I'll leave you with that one for a little while. And pick it up about verse... Uh, okay, you could... The command that may be... Well, you, verse 23, verse 24. But they hearkened not, nor inclined their ear, nor walked in the counsels and the, ma the imagination of their evil heart, and went backward and not forward. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt unto this day, I have even sent unto you all my servants and prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. He's describing himself like he gets up early on your behalf. You know, it's obviously, he doesn't go to sleep. We know that he that keepeth Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps, right? Some, right? But it's a figure of speech. Verse 26, Yet they hearkened not unto me, nor inclined their ear, nor heart, but hardened their neck, and they did worse than their fathers. Therefore thou shalt speak all these words unto them, but they will not hearken unto thee, and th thou shalt also call unto them, but they will not answer thee. Boy, what a discouraging note that is. And uh, those of you that are diligent students can compare that to Isaiah 6 and his challenge and others. The funniest contrast in my mind is Jonah. Jonah doesn't want to go. He gives his message reluctantly when he finally gets there. Had a little detour with submarine-type folks. He, uh, he uh, gets there, gives them this message, hoping they won't listen. And what do they do? What does Nineveh do? They repent, the dirty guys. Forty days comes destruction, no destruction came. Jonah goes and pouts because his revival was successful. It's a weird book. We all remember it because the fish hated more. There's stranger things in that book. Jeremiah is the opposite of that. Hey, Jeremiah, you really care? You're going to pour out your guts for the rest of your life for these people, and they're not going to hear you. Gee, thanks, boss. <laughs> Terrific. Verse 28, But thou shalt say unto them, This is a nation that obeyeth not the voice of the Lord their God, nor receiveth correction. Truth is perished and is cut off from their mouth. Therefore, cut off thine hair, O Jerusalem, and cast it away, and take up a lamentation on high places, for the Lord hath rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. Now, interesting set of phrases here, and he's a little bit of common. The cut off the hair, actually it says crown in the Hebrew, or sometimes translated that way, but it, it is a figure of speech that emerges out of the concept of the vow of the Nazarite. Under certain conditions, you could take a vow to the Lord, which, and your symbol of the vow was you, let, you didn't let a razor touch your head. It's the kind of thing that we remember from the story of Samson. But it actually was a specialized practice in certain conditions called the Nazarite vow. The way, when you've violated your vow, they cut your hair. Because the hair was, wasn't magic in the hair, it was a symbol of the commitment. And that's why Samson lost his strength. It wasn't the hair, it was a symbol of his commitment before the Lord. And uh, so there's a lot more going on there than just the lie like taking a pair of scissors. Now, but the word hair here is in the feminine in the Hebrew, meaning that the idiom here is really 
the city of Jerusalem, that is the daughter of uh, the daughter of Zion, a small point, but I, I bring it up. Uh, take up a lamentation on high places. Now, what the irony of here is the high places were where all the idols were. See, there's some irony here. In other words, take up your lamentation on the high place. In other words, okay, go up where all your idols are and you can weep there, you know. He gets more sarcastic as we go here, by the way, so hang tight. For the Lord uh, hath received and forsaken the generation of wrath. For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, saith the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to pollute it. Wow. They not only were worshiping idols, they brought them into the temple. Boy, is that insulting. It's one thing for us to fall back, to maybe turn our back on God, in fact, to do some inappropriate things. That's one issue. Not a trivial issue, but an issue. It's quite another to take that offense and bring it into the house of God. Heavy-duty stuff, which leads to verse 31. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my heart. In other words, God not only did, he, he never dreamed that they would do that. In other words, he not only did not command them to do this, it never even occurred to him to forbid it directly. That's not quite true, because it really is in, the, it is in Leviticus. It is expressly forbidden. But I mean, the way the Lord is speaking of it is, is just, just unthinkable. That's what he's trying to say. And they're speaking in an idiomatic sense. They have built the high places of Topheth. Now let's talk a little bit about Topheth. It's at the east end of the, it's on the east side of the southern end of the Valley of Hinnom, which goes between Jerusalem and, and now the word Topheth, we're not sure. We think it came from the word for fireplace in Aramaic. So the, to, the, the name has an Aramaic, Aramaic connotation to it and a linking with fire in the first place. Okay. Now, incidentally, the way the Hebrew points the text in the post that the word is actually a synonym for shame, which is also a nickname for Baal. So all these ideas are linked up in that word. There's some subtle technical Hebrew pointing, as they call it, with a text that is suggestive of a nickname for Baal in it, which is also the word shame in the Hebrew. Now, the valley is named apparently after the son of Hinnom, way, way back. So it's the Valley of Hinnom. Topheth, oh, uh, Topheth, some other things. Topheth is the place where they adopted a practice to the fire god, if I can call him that, of Molech. And um, you will find this expressly prohibited or mentioned in contrast in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, for those of you who want to chase this down. The god of Molech has its roots... The good news is I didn't bring those notes with me, so I'll just deal from memory. There was a cult of infant sacrifice that the Carthaginians originally had, and it was introduced to the Phoenicians and then finally to uh, uh, introduced here. And it had their, uh, the, they had a brazen pair of arms, and they actually sacrificed children. And the Carthaginians did it whenever they suffered a huge defeat or something. They would sacrifice kids. This uh, gets... Uh, developed into a form of, uh, of Molech worship that was, in fact, one of the more extreme and bizarre practices. Uh, now, the archaeological evidence is scanty. We do find a lot, and yet there's some controversy about, gee, did they really burn? They, 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 um, um, they can't believe they really did burn their kids. So they try to twist the text around that maybe what they really meant, they put them through the fire in the sense of enslaving them to the temple and those kinds of things. Uh, you can play around with that all you like. Jeremiah tells us they put them in the fire. They burned them. 
And there's actually a half a dozen places in the scripture that confirm the practice. Um, you're seeing one here, and we're going to encounter it again as we go, so I won't beat it to death right now. But, um, but Topheth is the principal place where the god of Molech was established, and this child sacrifice nonsense was conducted. And it was in the Valley of Hinnom. Now, that starts to paint the irony of all of this, because you're going to see his words here, is that the Valley of Hinnom, which is their place of worship, is going to become a refuse dump that burns continually. That happens subsequently. So the, the uh, pagan sanctuary becomes their cemetery. Okay? Now, as we go through, well, I'll come back to that. Let's just let's see what he says here. Verse uh, 31, they have built the high place of Topheth, which is in the valley of the, of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be called Topheth, nor the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. The valley of slaughter. The word, the definite article is present. For they shall bury in Topheth till there be no more place, and the carcasses of this people shall be food for the fowls of heaven and for the beasts of the earth, and none shall frighten them away. Then will I cause to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall be desolate. Bride and bridegroom are there as a idiom of joy. He's going, to re he's going to remove. The first three verses of chapter 8 are viewed by some scholars to really belong to chapter 7 in concept. Okay? And to really understand this, you need to understand that the ancients dreaded the idea of not being buried. One of the things that they feared was not only to die, but to not be buried. I mean, it was just a you and I sort of probably shrug that off for a lot of reasons, but to them that was a heavy-duty thing, and God is dealing with that. That's why these carcasses are going to lay around. We get to chapter 8. Uh, uh, we'll jump into this one. Let's just keep moving. Um, you get the first three verses of chapter 8, so we'll finish chapter 7 for sure, right? Okay. Chapter 8, verse 1. At that time, saith the Lord, they shall bring out the bones of the kings of Judah and the bones of his princes, and the bones of the priests, and the bones of the prophets, and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, bones of the kings of Judah, bones of his princes, bones of the princes, bones of the prophets, bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Five categories of people who are going to be disinterred, right, out of their graves. And they shall spread them before the sun and the moon and the host of heaven whom they have loved, whom they have served, whom they have walked, for, after whom they have walked, and whom they have sought, and whom they have worshipped. And they shall not be gathered nor buried, they shall be for refuse upon the face of the earth. God is upset. And you see that even in the construction of the sentences. Five groups of people whose bones will be disinterred and laid out. Laid out where? Before the hosts of heaven. Sun, the moon, the stars, astrology. One of the things they're worshiping, right? You want to worship them? Fine. You can worship them for eternity. You know, even after you're dead, we're going to disinter your bodies and lay those bones out before 
these things that you hold in such great regard, right? And then list five verbs, okay? Whom you have loved, whom, after whom you have served, whom after whom you have walked, whom you have sought and have worshipped. They shall not be gathered or buried, they shall be for refuge by the face of the earth. See, even in the structure of the sentence, it's tight, it's tough, it's articulate. Five groups of bones, five verbs, uh, uh, sarcastically or cynically modeling their worship of these things when they were alive. Okay? Now, as you see this attitude of God to his people for rejecting him and worshiping idols, as you read this in an Old Testament context, then when you move to the book of Revelation, and you see God's fury poured out upon the whole earth, you'll discover not only is he mad, he chooses the same idioms all the way through here. There's carcasses, there's birds, right? The bowls of wrath are climactically poured out, and they climax where? In the air. It pours out in the air. Why the air? There's the seventh one, because the prince of the power of the air. The whole thing has structure. The whole thing has consistency with the concepts that God has introduced in the Old Testament. And as you read the Old Testament and Revelation, you'll see it increasingly linked together. Verse 3, And death shall be chosen rather than life by all the residue of them that remain of this evil family, who, shall, who remain in the places to which I have driven them, saith the Lord of hosts. We might pause briefly to look at an analogous paragraph. Turn to Leviticus 26. I'd like to acquaint you with something that in your Bibles you might want to mark because it is very fun. Leviticus, first thing is to find Leviticus. Okay. It's in the Torah. That's the only hint I'll give you. Okay, we'll start at verse 32 and take it about 39. Leviticus 26, And I will bring the land unto desolation, and your enemies who dwell therein shall be astonished at it. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.